0: Man, I'll tell you, the book of Hebrews really is, I think it is my favorite book in the Bible. It really is my favorite book of the Bible. It has been for a long time, though my first exposure to Hebrews kind of scared the snot out of me. I remember when I was a freshman in college, and I didn't have, I mean, I had become a Christian, you know, through uh, high school ministry. I'd been raised in a church that never talked about a personal relationship with Jesus. I'd never heard that idea Till I was in high school, and it sounded kind of weird and freaky to me. Um, but eventually I came to understand that God didn't just create us to do things and to do the right things, but he created us to be in a relationship with himself and to, to be close to his heart. And that was, that was pretty revolutionary. But I didn't know much about... The Bible or about what Christianity was other than just some vague ideas. And I remember my freshman year in college, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I remember going to this church that started preaching uh, on the book of Hebrews. And I remember we got to chapter 6, which has this intense um, warning passage. The book of Hebrews has some very intense warning passages. And it talked about it's impossible for those who have Partaken of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the heavenly gift and tasted of the powers of the age to come. That if they fall away, it's impossible for them to come back again to repentance. It's pretty stern warning, and believe me, we'll get to it and we'll talk about it in depth coming up here. But I remember the the pastor, I think, misunderstanding that passage and teaching uh, me that it was at least theoretically possible for Christians to lose their salvation, and it threw me into such turmoil in in some ways that I think in a lot of ways it kind of deadened my heart to the Lord in a lot of ways. I, I just felt like, well, if it's possible that this is all in vain, then I don't know if I want to devote any more passion to this thing. It seems like I might be betrayed at some point in the future. All that to say, um, the warning passages are, are are rather intense in Hebrews, and we get to one of them here. I'm not going to talk about it in, in, uh, in great depth tonight because um, there are other places where I think it's easier to talk about the warning passages. But I, this is a passage here that in chapter 3 that talks about danger. Now, as I've said before about the book of Hebrews, I believe it was written... And not just me, a lot of uh, Bible scholars believe this, that it was written to a small group of Christians, probably less than the people in this room, who lived in Rome. They were from Jewish background and they'd become Christians. They have already suffered some persecution In AD 49, all the Christians were expelled from Rome because of riots that happened between the Christians and the Jews. And at that point, the Romans realized that Christians were a distinct religion. They weren't just a kind of Jew. And while Judaism was a protected religion under Roman law, Christianity was a new religion. As a matter of fact, most of the time, the Christians were regarded by the Romans as atheists, which is kind of ironic. That's the number one Criticism of the Christians is they're atheists because they don't believe in the whole pantheon of gods. All right? And so, at the time the book of Hebrews is written, the persecutions under Nero, who was crazy, are about to begin. And the book even talks about this that the people this book is written to, he says, the writer says to them, you have suffered the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but that's coming. So, very obvious danger to these Christians from the Romans. And yet, the passage that we're going to look at tonight talks about a different danger. Now, it's not unrelated, but I think so often Christians get caught up in thinking that our chief danger lies outside of our community. And sometimes Christian groups even kind of find a sense of intimacy and really a false intimacy that comes from demonizing all the bad, dangerous people that are outside of the church's walls and how they all just want to get us and wipe us out. And sometimes that's true. There are some places in the world right now, there are more Christians persecuted right now than there ever been in the history of the world, right? That's very real. And yet, so often the church can think that the chief dangers are outside when often the really serious threats are our own unbelief. I would propose to you that's actually the story of the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after sin has entered the world, God speaks the first promise of the gospel, of the good news, wherein he says that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. The serpent and the seed of the woman will be at enmity, will be at warfare. And this is a promise that God is going to send one who will be the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent and make all things right. And the rest of the Bible really is about whether God will keep that promise. And there are two great threats to that promise. The one threat are all the external enemies that threaten to wipe out God's people and thus wipe out the seed line of the Messiah. So when you find the Philistines wanting to wipe out Israel, it's not just about genocide. It's about Satan's plot to keep God's promise from coming true. That's at least the Bible's way of seeing it in a bigger cosmic picture. That's why at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you have once again a woman giving birth, and you have a dragon there ready to eat the child, kill the child, and keep that promise from coming true. So that's the one threat, these external enemies. But the other threat to God's promise being kept is God's own people and the way they try his patience. The way their unbelief tries his patience. When time after time after time he demonstrates his love, he demonstrates that he can care for them. And yet they still turn away from him with unbelieving hearts. And I would submit to you that that's still the most serious problem that we face. And I think for a lot, of, a lot of people who call themselves Christians, they really are blind to how serious of a problem that is. And thus, the book of Hebrews can be rather a rude awakening. But that's what we read about here in chapter 3. So if you have the outline, turn it over. Not the outline, the uh, announcement sheet. Turn it over, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we, the church, are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he reads a passage from the Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brethren, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom he was angry and sorry, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It's a cheery passage, isn't it? Well, it's a a serious thing. If he truly is the living God and hope is found nowhere else, then it really matters how we respond to him and to his call. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into this passage. Lord, we thank you that even though as we sit here tonight, many of us would be quick to confess that we have sinful, unbelieving hearts. We thank you, Lord, that it is still today and that your invitation to come and collapse upon you and your grace and to find rest is still there. We pray that you would move us to obey your commands, that you would send your spirit. We pray that even through the foolishness of preaching tonight, that you would help us to know what it means to rest, to know what it means to encourage one another, to know what it means to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We pray you'd help us not just to know what this is, but to even do it tonight by grace. We pray that you'd send your spirit to that end because we need your help. We need you tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for me, here's the way I would summarize what this passage is about. And this is kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. In times of trial, because again, Hebrews is written to people in times of trial. The testing in the wilderness for the 40 years was certainly a time of great trial for God's people back in Exodus In times of trial, it's vital that we fix our eyes upon Jesus so that we won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And to do this, we need help. And God has given us help. He's given us the church. He's given us each other. So we're going to look at this. I think where we'll start, really, even though it's a little out of order with the way the passage goes, but I think this will help us, is to really start with considering this idea of the danger that Hebrews is talking about here. Now, like I said, we are going to talk about the warning passages. But the heart of what I think Hebrews is saying, uh, it might help you to understand a little of that background I talked about before I started reading the Scripture the Jewish Christians that the letter of the Hebrews is written to are people who have professed faith. They are people who have said, yes, we believe in Jesus. But they are coming to a real crisis because for them to continue to profess faith in Jesus during the persecution of Nero means that many of them are going to be put to death. Nero was famous for a particular way of dealing with Christians where he would dip them in tar, stake them up on big giant stakes in his garden and light them on fire for his parties. This is serious stuff that's going on here, right? He wasn't fooling around. And the letter to the Hebrews is not fooling around when it talks about this stuff. But what is available politically to these Jewish Christians is to shrink back from believing in Christianity and go back to being merely Jewish. And if they do that, they will find protection from the persecution because Judaism at this time is still a tolerated religion under Roman law. So the question for them is, you know, can we still follow God but turn back from Jesus? And it's, and it's a serious question. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look, just because you've been hanging around with the church, even just because you've even claimed to be a Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that you've really experienced the new birth, that you really have been transformed by grace. As a matter of fact, the image he gives here is, look, these people that were with Moses wandered around with God for 40 years. They saw what he did, but at the end of the day, Eventually, what became manifest was they didn't really believe him. They didn't really believe in God. Right? And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is perseverance is the test of reality. And the call and the invitation is don't take this stuff lightly. Persevere. Now, I will argue that as the book of Hebrews develops, you find more this, this kind of theology of perseverance and God's preservation. You know, is the, is the emphasis on our persevering or on God's preservation of his people? Do I believe in eternal security? Absolutely. But I don't usually say it that way because I think that that flattens out a teaching in the Bible that's more carefully nuanced. Here's what I mean. I think the Bible clearly teaches the sovereignty of God over all things including his people, including grace. But I also think the Bible clearly teaches human responsibility. And I think it teaches both of those things are both true at the same time. And therefore, there are places where the Bible puts the emphasis on what we should do and what we need to, res- to do. But it also, that's within the context of what God is doing. All that to say that when you get to this issue of perseverance and preservation, you find that God calls his people to persevere, but the ones that persevere are the ones who are truly changed, and that that sort of proof is seen in the perseverance. Now, again, we will talk more about this as Hebrews goes on. It's going to come up again, and it actually comes up in a more intense way in chapter 6, so that's going to be you know, a place where we're going to talk about this kind of for the whole night. But here's what's going on, is there is a call, and I would argue that this calling is part of God's grace. When God says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, that itself is part of how God holds his people. It's it's a call that in some ways can, can be received by some who will say, well, forget it. I'm going to still harden my heart. And that deliberate rejection of that invitation is itself not a very good sign. But then there are others who, um, you know, who really will respond to that and that that word of God will be grace to them and will be life-giving to them because God's word um, comes to them and meets with a response of faith. Now, Like I said, I do believe in eternal security. I don't usually use that word because what a lot of people mean by that in a lot of evangelical Christian circles is that I know that if I said some words one time and I went forward and I prayed a prayer and somebody kind of led me step by step through it, pray these words and then you'll be saved then they're told that whether you've ever seen any change in your life, whether you've ever seen any fruit in your life, whether you've ever sent, had a sense of peace in your life, don't ever worry about it or think about it again because you're saved and that's basically your get-out-of-hell-free card and now go on and live the way you want. right? That, that, that flattens out this idea. Even that, that little phrase you hear sometimes, once saved, always saved. Yes, but I would not say that everybody that claims to follow Jesus is necessarily saved. I think in some ways the proof is seen in this perseverance issue. And at the very end of the outline, I put a little verse from 1 John 2 that I think helps explain the Bible's teaching on this, right? Um, John says to some, some people he's writing to, the Apostle John, is writing to Christians who have had some of their leaders leave the church. And he says to them, basically, they went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they, they, weren't, they weren't really ever of us. They weren't really part of us, even though it seemed like that for a while. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that tonight. Because, um, so what is the danger? And, and again, here's, the danger is an unbelieving heart. Trials are a problem, without a doubt. But trials actually, I think the Hebrew, one, of the, one of the main lessons in the book of Hebrews is that trials can also be mercy of God. To expose your heart's direction. See, in light of the fact that sin is deceitful, that sin blinds us and binds us, we need God's help even to see where we really stand and what's really going on in our lives and in our hearts. And and one of the ways that God can help you see the direction of your heart, because honestly, hearts don't stand still. Hearts are always moving towards some object. As it was uh, St. Augustine that put it so well 1,500 years ago, I guess it was now. No, yeah, about 1,500, 1,600 years ago. He said, our hearts are restless, O God, until we find rest in thee. We all have restless hearts, or as the boss says, everybody's got a hungry heart. You maybe are too young to remember Springsteen, aren't you? Yeah. It was, a great, it was a great, great song. Everybody, everybody has a heart that is moving towards some object that it finds beautiful. Okay? Your heart doesn't stand still. But sometimes it's hard to even understand the ways of the heart. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond understanding. Who can know it? Now, that's quite a problem if you're one of those people, like many people in our culture, that believes that sort of you'll just sort of kind of find God in your heart if you look in your heart or believes that, you know, just, you know, follow your heart. Or like Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide, right? That's a problem if your conscience is warped. Or the Bible even goes so far as to talk about people with a seared conscience. And it says that your hearts are deceitful. So how how does God help us? Well, one of the things he does is he sends trials. And trials help expose whether we're moving toward the cross or away from it. And that's what he's saying here. These trials are coming, but the question you need to ask is not, how can we get out of this trial as fast as possible? In some ways, like the writer of Hebrews would even say, don't waste a good trial. Don't waste a good trial. God, in his mercy, has brought an opportunity for you to see which way your deceitful heart is moving. Is it moving toward God, pressing in, even through the pain, through the trial, to say, God, I want to know you and the power of salvation more deeply in my life? Or is it saying, God, you owe me better than this? Trials have a way of exposing us. They have a particular way of exposing what we truly are trusting in. And honestly, you may think that's That's bad, but I would submit to you that it's actually incredibly helpful because it's very hard sometimes to determine what's really ultimate in your life until you go down. Often you may think that you're trusting in this, and then when things fall apart, you find that you really you're trusting in something else. And is it kind of God to show you that your trust that you thought was really in him honestly is only in him when it works, but when things fall apart, you really are beginning to trust in something else? Yes, I think it's greatly kind of him to do that. Unbelief is our great enemy, but unbelief, you understand, in God is always belief in something. Tim Keller says it well. He's a pastor up in New York City. He says, you can't doubt everything all at once. You always have to stand somewhere to doubt. Or the way I might put it that maybe it would make sense to you guys, uh, I remember talking to a pastor at a church I used to work at who was the singles pastor. And I think I said something to him once about, you know, oh, all these singles. And, of course, I was still single. I was single till I was 33. But I thought I was above this. But I said, oh, you know, what, what do you do about this problem that so many singles are afraid of commitment? They have this fear of commitment. And he said, Kevin, I don't think they have a fear of commitment. They're quite committed. They're quite committed to their own independence. Their motto is, stay safe by staying free. That as soon as you close off options, you might miss something. So they're very committed. You can never be uncommitted. Nobody here really has a fear of commitment. You're all committed to something, even if it's staying safe by staying uncommitted to anything other than your ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, right? Right? And it's like that even in, in sort of like the issue of trust. You're trusting in something. You may say, I really struggle to believe. I really struggle to believe. No, you actually don't. You're believing in something. Something is functioning as your ultimate trust. There's something that consoles you when your life is falling apart. There's something that you secretly cherish, will, you know, the hope that it will deliver you one day and bring you the kind of life that you want whether it's meaning or money, significant relationship, there's something, there's something that you're counting on. And often we can't see it until trials come. And when trials come, they often have this way of exposing demandingness in our heart. I remember um, years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who actually is still single, but this was This was a good uh, 15 years ago when I was in seminary. And I was talking to this friend. we had been friends since college. And in all that time, you know, I guess when I was talking to him in college, neither one of us had really went on a real date, you know. And some of that was, well, a lot of it was just fear. But some of it was almost... Seemed like God went out of his way to make it difficult or to thwart our attempts. I don't know. At least that's how I felt, just being honest. And I was talking to my friend, and at one point he said something that was very poignant. It was very, you know, vulnerable, um, and I, I needed to deal with it sensitively, but also truthfully. He said, is it too much for me to ask that God would give me one date? Just one? Is that too much to ask? And I I, I thought about it, it just sort of hit me all of a sudden, he's not asking. It's not too much to ask, but he's not asking. I said to him, no, it's not too much to ask, but I think you're demanding. And the God I know doesn't do real well to demands. Doesn't do real well with demands. Because God knows that ultimately... He, does, he cannot become God on a leash. God will not become God on the leash. C.S. Lewis wrote a very important essay about this very thing. It's called God in the Dock. Has anybody ever read that essay, God in the Dock? A few of you have. The dock in the English court system, and Lewis, C.S. Lewis is English, in case you didn't know. The, the English court system, the dock is, where, is the area where the defendant sits, kind of this box in a criminal trial. And he says one of the amazing things is in most cultures throughout the history of the world, the basic assumption was mankind has to answer to God for how he's lived. Whether you're Christian or you know various religions, they all seem to, to have this basic kind of idea that's common throughout so many cultures, throughout so many ages that... That basically man has to answer to God. But he says one of the remarkable achievements of modern man is that he's taken man out of the dock and he's put God in the dock. And the assumption now is that God has a lot of explaining to do, that God has to answer to man for how he's done ruling the universe. And the conclusion that most of modern mankind has come to is God has not done a very good job and that we're ready to fire him or worse. Maybe he needs to be crucified. And this is is the essence. This is the essence of what the Jewish power uh, structures thought about Jesus himself. He's not performing the way messiahs are supposed to perform. As a matter of fact, he may even threaten our own power base and get us in trouble with the Romans. And you remember there's this place um, where the, the high priest for the year says... Perhaps one man needs to die for the nation. He said more than he realized when he said that. What he meant was, this man needs to die, even if it's unjust, to protect us and to protect our power uh, structures. There's always this kind of demandingness where God has to perform for us. And here's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Remember how this happened in the past. Right now... Here you are in the midst of this trial, and the thoughts that are going through the heads of the people that this letter is written to is, can God really be trusted? If God could be trusted, why is he bringing this stuff into our lives? I'm not sure he deserves my trust or my worship or my belief. I think I'm going to have to take care of things myself. He's not doing a very good job protecting me. And God says, look, this has happened before. When I delivered all of these people out of Egypt, out of bondage, where they had been enslaved for 400 years, you remember, it was a pretty big deal the way God did it, right? He opened up a path through the river, right, to the, through the sea so that they could walk through on dry land. It was unbelievable. And they were all there, and they all saw it. And they get to the other side, and one of the first things they do is they go to Moses and say, Why have you brought us here? To die. God led us out here to die. And they say it over again, over and over and over again. And eventually, they put God to the test. Which is a way of saying that they want a God who will function for them. They don't want God. They don't want God's heart. They want what God can do for them. And see, here I feel like God's word is is starting to meddle with us in the way we live. Because honestly more than we realize, so often we slip into this very same thing. If we're honest, we want what God can do more than we really want God. And one of the ways that you find that out is when trials come, and you really, in that, in that quiet moment in your heart, maybe through tears, you finally get a moment of clarity where you realize that if you had the choice right now between giving up on God and giving up on this pain, you would be very sorely tempted to give up on God. What in your life could lead you to, the, to that kind of brink of abandoning God? And yet there are probably times, I suspect, where you've been close to saying that, that given the choice... If I could get rid of my confusion, I would be willing to give up God himself. It doesn't doesn't help for us to pretend that that kind of stuff doesn't go on in our hearts. And that's what is going on here. God knows that sin is so deceitful that it can lie to us in such a way that we may think, That there are things that are more beautiful, more powerful, more life-giving than God himself. And if God won't give us those things, we're not sure we really want God. That's serious. And that's serious danger. And here's the thing. What do you do when you're in that place? What do you do when you realize that you're kind of in that vulnerable place Well, here's the good news, is that God comes to the rescue. How does he do that? How does he do that? He calls us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And you may think, oh, gosh, that sounds like sort of this kind of little platitude. You know, just trust in Jesus. It'll be okay. But, guys, what he's saying here is something much more profound than just sort of sweep your confusion and your struggles under the rug and just look at Jesus and smile about it. He's not saying that at all. What does it mean to fix our eyes upon Jesus? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is, who is Jesus? Because what's interesting here is when he says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, he describes Jesus in particular ways. As a matter of fact, some of these ways are unique to the book of Hebrews. And I think one of the problems with a lot of Christian thought and a lot of Christians is we're content with very general ideas about God and about the gospel and about Jesus. But what the writer of Hebrews says is, fix your eyes upon Jesus, a particular Jesus who has particular things to offer that do battle against your unbelief and your fear. Look at, look at what he does here. The first thing he says, consider or fix your thoughts on Jesus, verse 1, the apostle. Do you know this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called the apostle? Now that might confuse some people. I thought the apostles were the apostles. And Jesus is the one who called the apostles and then sent them. But here's what's mind-blowing. Jesus himself is the apostle par excellence. Par excellence. Before he calls and sends anybody, he himself first answers a call and is sent. Do you understand? Jesus is the sent one. And he manifests and he talks about this all through his life. And I would submit to you that this is good for you and good for you to know about. That when you're struggling to believe that Jesus is really as good as he says he is, consider this. Jesus was sent. The Father and the Son covenanted together, took counsel together in the plan of redemption. God the Father and God the Son decided that God the Son would take on human flesh, would walk around and experience the brokenness that sin had brought into the world, that he would weep and cry and ache over his broken creation And then he would submit to the most shameful death, unjust suffering. And God the Father and God the Son said that was good. And God the Father sent Jesus and he came and he lived and he walked around saying things like, it is my meat and my drink to do the will of my Father. Do you know why this is good for you to know? Because Jesus said that if you want to have a relationship with God, the Father who made you, one that's open and free and beautiful, you need to love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength all the time. And I don't know a person in here, starting with me, who could stand before God and say, yep, I've done that. Now, I often act like I deserve credit for that because I feel like God deserves to bless me in every way imaginable. At least when he doesn't, I get kind of mad about it, which shows that I really think I deserve it. But here's the thing. I need to love God like that. It's what he made me for. And so it's, it's absolutely vital that I understand that Jesus did that. Because in the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just sort of walk around so he could become acquainted with grief, though he certainly did that. But he came and he lived and he resisted temptation, which got more and more difficult the closer he got to the cross. He persevered to the end and God looked at it and said, this is beautiful. This is my son in whom I am well pleased And he demonstrated that to the world when he raised Jesus from the dead and sat him at his right hand. And the good news of the gospel is when I put my trust in Jesus, I get credit for that. So in the midst of trials, in the midst of trials, even when my faith fails, it's absolutely vital that I know that God does not look upon Christians he does not look upon Christians according to the strength of their faith, but according to the object of their faith. Weak faith is still faith in Christ. And if it's faith in Christ, God looks at Christ when he looks at you, and you get credit for that. And so God doesn't require Christians to be supermen and superwomen who are never who are never bothered by trials and just sort of rise above it all the time, right? Jesus is the apostle, and our being sent is an echo of his being sent, and he was sent for you and for me, right? It also says that he's our high priest. Now, back in chapter 2, it talked about how he was the high priest, but here I love the personal. He's our high priest, He's our high priest. And there's a world of difference between just confessing that Jesus is a high priest and knowing that he's our high priest. And this close connection that the book of Hebrews draws between Jesus our priest and we his people is remarkable. It's remarkable. It's astonishing to think that God himself would identify with his people, that he would take on human flesh and know everything that they're tempted by. And experience the same kinds of suffering that we experience. That God did not distance himself from our pain, but came and took it upon himself. And here's something I want you to consider. I didn't have a chance to talk about this last week, but I think it's so important. I think that the trials and pains that come into our life, rather than than just considering them things to get through, I think the Bible would go so far and be so presumptuous as to, as to contend that you have in your trials and in your pain a doorway into tasting the love of Jesus and emotionally connecting with the love of Jesus like you never have before. Here's what I mean. Some of us might say, for example, that if we could relieve the pain of our loneliness, we would do anything. We would do anything. And, and if, if we're honest, so often the pain of our loneliness threatens to drown out the love of God in our hearts. And, and yet, I think in so many ways, we think that we, we sort of have to get past the pain of loneliness to get the love of God. We have, to, we have to sort of like get that completely out of our life before we can really understand God's love. What if the pain of loneliness was a doorway for you to understand in a real visceral way what it meant for Jesus to love you? In other words, when loneliness is threatening to consume you, what if it was a time and an opportunity for you to ponder the loneliness that Jesus took. Because Jesus experienced loneliness and abandonment like you can't even begin to imagine. And see, here's what I, what I think. A lot of people feel like they have to pit loneliness against the love of God. And I, I think so often people, we're really confused about what love feels like. I think it's true in our relationships with the opposite sex where we feel like Love feels like this adrenaline rush, which is often sort of the adrenaline rush that comes from the pursuit. And then we mistake that for love and then we think we've fallen out of love. And there's a lot of people who get really hurt by that. But I also think sometimes in the Christian life, we do a similar thing where we think love feels like warm fuzzies. But I would submit to you that love may feel like experiencing loneliness and communing with Christ in his sufferings there. And coming to understand that this loneliness that you would do anything to get out of your life, Jesus had the opportunity to avoid it, and he didn't. The loneliness that you can't avoid, at least not without betraying God, is a loneliness that Jesus took even more so, and he took it willingly, and he didn't have to. And in the midst of your loneliness, you can commune, in a way, with the sufferings of Jesus. I would just submit to you that while you may be 20, 21, 22, and feel like I don't know if I'll ever get married and feel very lonely, honestly, guys, being 33 and being single feels different. I don't want to make light of being 20 and 21, and you know maybe some of you experienced heartbreak even recently, and it's tender. But I'm just saying there's something different about being in your 30s. But there's also an opportunity there, to understand what it was like for Jesus to be alone at 33 years old as he hung on a cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that there's an opportunity to understand a bit, taste a bit of what that felt like. And the love of Jesus is in the midst of that. Right? So this idea that Jesus is our high priest who became like us and suffered like us means that even in the midst of your pain and your confusion, you have a doorway into understanding what it meant for Jesus to love you. Because I think for a lot of us, the love of Jesus is really kind of nebulous and abstract, but your pain feels very visceral and real. And what I'm saying is you might think differently about your pain. It may be a doorway for you to begin to understand the love of Jesus in a more emotionally profound way. So that's worth pondering. But what does it mean to fix our eyes upon Jesus? Fix our eyes. Here's what it means. It means to have an intentional focusing of our attention upon Jesus as he's revealed. It it means to think, and here's where I think Hebrews shows us here. There are particular ways that every one of us struggles with fear and unbelief. There are particular things that we forget and find difficult to believe about Jesus. For instance, some of you, and often this is related to your story, and the ways you've been sinned against in your life. But there are some of you who find it very easy to believe that God is sovereign, but very difficult to believe that he's good. There are some of you that find it very easy to believe he's good, but you really struggle to believe he's in control. Because if he was really in control, my life wouldn't be like it is. But I believe he's good, I just don't believe he can do much about it. Right? And those are very different things. And what I believe encouragement is all about, as it says here, encourage one another daily. The encouragement is speaking truth into people's fear in a very specific way. And it's what Hebrews is showing us here. These people need to know that they have a high priest and that Jesus is the apostle, the sent one. They need to know that he is the one who has greater honor than Moses. Moses was faithful, yes, but Jesus is sovereign. He's the son, and he's the faithful one. And and what he earns by his faithfulness so far exceeds what Moses was able to accomplish. They need to know that, and you need to know that too. What does it mean to fix our eyes upon Jesus? First, it means we need that. You never outgrow your need of looking at Jesus and I think some people maybe feel like sometimes eventually the longer they become Christians, maybe they'll eventually move past feeding on Jesus and be able to just feed on being right about their theology. There's lots of different ways people sort of move past thinking like they need Jesus. But honestly, you still need Jesus and you still need faith sites of him and what he's done. What we look at really matters. That's one of the things we learn here. And I want to close with you considering this thing. The difference between fixing your thoughts on your faith and fixing your thoughts on Jesus. And, and I think this is, a, a, again, one of the ways that sin is so easily um, deceives us. And so, I, you know, I'm going to call your attention to this little letter. William Romaine was an 18th century Anglican pastor, lived in England. And his letters are amazing. He wrote one of the cool things about this era in church history is that people would write questions to their pastors and these guys would, uh, and, and women too, like Ann Dutton's letters are amazing if you ever want to read hers. But they would write these letters of spiritual counsel that are so powerful. William Romaine was writing to a friend of his who had written him a letter, basically feeling like they often are kind of dejected and depressed and fearful in their, in their relationship with Jesus. And look at what he says here and think about this. Consider the difference between fixing your eyes on your faith and fixing your eyes on Jesus. He says to this friend, you are looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but at your faith. You would draw your comfort not from him, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect Savior. In other words, you know, he, he goes on and says a few lines here that you basically are making a Jesus out of your faith. And I think a lot of Christians are in spiritual turmoil because of this very thing. They've been made to think somehow that God loves them more if they're more consistently um, passionate about him. Now, it's good to be passionate about Jesus, but it's death to think that God's passion about you is based on how passionate you are for him. The Bible never teaches that, and I will guarantee you that your life will be spiritual hell if you believe that lie, right? Making a Jesus out of your faith. Have you ever been in a relationship where you had DTR define the relationship talks like every other day? How long does that relationship last? Not long. The quickest way to fall out of love is to work on the relationship, rather than focusing on the other person. But that's what Christians do all the time. They're always sort of trying to take this sort of spiritual temperature of their faith and their passion. And he says, if you do that, if you look at your faith, you'll see it's full of holes. And then you'll basically feel like Jesus is full of holes. And he goes on. Look at the part I underlined here. He says, I also observe how by this mistake and by the great sin, the sin of sins... You are robbed of the sweet enjoyment of the God of all comfort. You lose what you seek, which is comfort, and you lose it in the way of seeking. You want comfort and you look to your faith for it. If faith could speak to you, it would say this. I've got nothing to give you. Look at Jesus. It's all in him. And indeed, my friends, it is. The Holy Ghost, the Comforter, will not glorify your faith. He will not give it the honor of comforting you. He takes nothing to comfort you with but the things of Christ and his things not as used by you but as given by him who is all yours. I grant you and I know it well that much faith brings much comfort from Christ and carries much glory to him but the way to get much faith is not to look at it as you do but to look at the Savior. Not to look at your hand but to look at Jesus, not to look at how you hold on to him, but that he is yours and holds you and your faith to, And therefore you shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. That's what we need. Last point. How do we get this? God gives us one more thing. He gives us Jesus. He calls us to fix our eyes upon him, but then he gives us each other. And I love this. Encourage one another daily. God knows we need help. Lone Ranger Christians don't exist, at least not healthy ones, right? We need each other. And this isn't just for pastors. This isn't just my job to encourage you daily. It's not Molly's job. It's not Wendy's job. It's not Chase's job. It's your job. This is written to a church, to a group of people to say, you guys need to take up the corporate responsibility to be in relationship where people can encourage you, and you can't encourage you very well unless you share enough of your story for them to know the contours of your heart and know the ways that you tend to fall away from belief in the gospel. Some of you may need to share enough of your story with some people that really know you and will be committed to you that they can speak meaningful into your life. And say, I know why you find this hard to believe. But let me remind you that Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't like your dad. He's like this. And and you need people that know you well enough. And you need to be the kind of person who wants to know people deep enough that you can speak meaningful words of encouragement into their fear in specific ways. I know that's scary. But God says in his word that you need to be able to encourage one another daily. You need it, and you need to do it. Encouragement is not flattery. Encouragement, and and I would say this last little thing. When you're encouraging people who are in trials, it's very easy to just flatter them and encourage them in their bitterness and their demandingness. Honestly, sometimes I talk with people, and I hear their stories, and I feel like, oh, my gosh, like I don't, like i'm mad for you <laughs> and i and, and some, I think that's appropriate at times to say like that was really terrible what you suffered that really sucked what you what you're enduring now but i need to be very careful that i don't say you didn't deserve that god had no right to bring that into your life i have to be careful about that that i don't encourage a heart of bitterness and demandingness because our hearts are always so ready to say look I've lived better than other people, therefore I deserve this, this, and this. And, and in, in trials, even when God may be wanting to expose for your good the direction of your heart, you may have well-meaning Christian friends that are sort of working at cross purposes. So be careful how you encourage, that it really is encouragement. But my plea with you is you need each other. We do these small groups not just so we can feel good about RUF. We do this because we know that you need a context in which you can be known. It's one thing to sit here and hear a sermon. And we believe in the power of the preached word of God, that God honors his, his preached word. His word goes out and it doesn't return void. The Bible promises that. And we believe that. But we also know that you need to encourage one another daily. And that means you need to be in a context where that can happen. You need to take upon yourself that responsibility. There are people in your life that need you to encourage them daily and you need it too. So pray about that. Ponder that. It may not be in RUF. That's okay. We understand the kingdom of God is much bigger than RUF, right? But find it somewhere. Find it somewhere. Let's pray.